Uh, we're in a series on doctrine, the foundational beliefs of Christianity. And the first doctrinal belief that's the basis of all the others is simply this, the belief in the one true God. The Bible simply begins with the reality that there's one true God. And this God exists outside of time and space. And he is the one who has created everything that there is. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse in our Bible says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so if you haven't done so already, pull out your message notes. And here's the first point that you need to take um, consideration of this morning is this. Point one, there is a God. The Bible doesn't attempt to explain God. <laughs> Instead, it merely presents the reality that he is there. In fact, the Bible presupposes that the evidence of his existence is clearly visible to anyone who's simply willing to see it. In the 19th Psalm, it starts this way, that the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies Proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. The creation itself just merely proclaims loudly that there is is a God. Kind of a common illustration that you've probably heard before, but is that of the watchmaker, that if you were walking along one day on the beach and you notice something shiny and you kind of bend down and you pick it up and it's a Rolex watch and you're looking at that thing and the complexity of it and the beauty of it and just what an incredible uh, instrument this is, this, this, this thing, you would just probably logically conclude and say something like this, wow, this is a miraculous work of time, plus matter, plus random chance. <laughs> no, of course not. You would logically conclude that this complex created thing had a creator. And the same thing would be true of all that we see, this complex, beautiful world that we live in. But many modern scientists want us to believe that there isn't a God. But instead, everything that we see, even life itself, is the result of random chance and its development over time evolving into all of us and all of this. I think John Lennox does a great job of explaining this in his book, God's Undertaker, Has Science Buried God? He says that a lot of times what the new atheists do is kind of something like this. It's like they bring in this engine from a 1967 Ford Mustang. And they set it down in front of us and they say, okay, is this the result of this engine? Is this the result of scientific engineering or of Henry Ford? And we realize, if you think about it, that's really a false dichotomy, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, yes, it's both of those things. That Henry Ford developed systems, he developed approaches to building a car, utilizing those who've come after him, engineering and combustion research and all of those things to create this engine. 
You see, in reality, science doesn't disprove God, but really quite the opposite, right? C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, men became scientists because they expected law in nature. And they expected law in nature because they believed in a law giver. And that's why modern science came into existence during the Christian culture of the 16th and 17th centuries. And why guys like Newton and Galileo and da Vinci and Kepler and all the rest were all believers in God. Melvin Calvin, who is a current day a Nobel Prize winner in biochemistry, he, he said this, he said that you know when, when, when he looked around, that the origin of the scientific impulse, as he concluded, was that there was one creator who constructed the world intelligently according to the laws that he created. Not, not a bunch of random things, but one creator. He wasn't even a believer. And, and, Cal, and Calvin went on to say that that idea seemed to maybe have originated with the Hebrews. <laughs> you know, Abraham's descendants, of which we trace back our faith. Because, you see, good science looks at all the evidence and then takes you to whatever the evidence concludes, no matter what that might be. And so I would put forth for you this morning is that good science takes you to the conclusion of a creator, God. But what modern atheists today tend to do, guys like Richard Dawkins and some of these guys who are maybe more known and more talked about. Instead, what they do is they begin with the preconceived idea that there can't be a God. And so thus the answer to all that we see is scientific development alone. And faith then, they conclude, is, well, that's what we fill in the gaps with. We have faith to believe the stuff that we don't have proof for. But I tell you, friends, that's not faith. That, that's delusional thinking. <laughs> that's fantasy. That's self-deception. I mean, I mean if, if I brought up a, a bunch of just little flimsy cardboard shoeboxes and stacked them on top of each other and said, I have faith that that is going to hold my weight when I sit down on them, you would know I'm delusional, right? <laughs> but if I took one of these chairs and I brought it up here, and I said, I have faith that this chair is going to hold me up. You would feel, see, my faith is based upon the evidence. It's based upon fact. You see, science is God's creation. He doesn't work outside of scientific fact. There is a God who created life in all that there is. And he works within the scientific realities that he created. And that is why the greatest scientists of bygone years were Christians. Because he is a creator God who works within his own scientific development. He is the law giver. But you see, where we begin as Christians is this, that there is one true God who is the creator and the sustainer of all creation. And in fact, the Nicene Creed, which is been held to and quoted by believers down through the centuries, begins this way, that we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible 
and invisible. And so let's worship that God. Can we do that? Let's stand together and let's lift our voices to, br- to praise the one true God. So there is a God. And this God has revealed himself. He is not hidden. He's revealed himself in his creation, certainly. There's things that we can learn about God from his creation. He is orderly. He is creative, certainly. You look around at the world and parts of the world's elements of beauty that are even largely unseen to most of mankind. He is creative. He's orderly. Other things we can learn from his creation. But also, he has revealed himself in his word, in the Bible. And that's why the Bible is so important to us. Pastor Steve talked about this last weekend. If you weren't here last weekend, be sure to go in and watch or listen to that message to get the full extent. But, but he's revealed himself in the Bible. And so we study it to learn more about the one true God so that we can better understand who he is and who we are in relationship to who he is. And so the second point then is this. Not only is there a God, but as God, point number two, he gets to call the shots. Isn't that right? Listen to Paul in Colossians chapter 1. He says, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on the earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the creator of everything. He is the sustainer of everything. He's God. And thus is God. He gets to call the shots. He gets to determine how things are. Listen, kind of follow me on this. If God is who he says he is, he is the maker of us and all that there is, then whatever he says goes. Isn't that right? And I think it's important that we get our minds around that because so often I hear people say things like this. Well, you know, I just don't believe in a God who, whatever, however they finish that sentence. Or, you know, I, I think a loving God wouldn't do this. Or a loving God would do this. As if our thoughts, our beliefs somehow define reality. I mean, I was pulled over for going over the speed limit not too long ago and the police officer got out, and he started to write, and I said, hey, listen, this is no problem, because I don't believe in speeding tickets. <laughs> and the officer very quickly informed me that my beliefs on the matter didn't really define reality. <laughs> you see, what's real is real, despite what I think about it. That what actually is true is true, regardless of my beliefs. It's this, it's this, we don't create God in our image, rather he created us in his image, right? And so we turn to his word to better understand who he is and what he expects of us. And it's important that we understand that. Because I think if we're honest, what we want 
is a God that we can control, right? See, a God who, who comes through for us when we need him to come through for us. A God who, who loves us, but who only acts in ways that makes our lives more pleasant, right? I listened this week to an interview of um, Susan Van Volkenberg, who has written a book called Silent Resolve and the God Who Let Me Down. And it's a, it's a good book. It's, it's the story of her crisis of faith when her dad, who was killed in one of the airplanes on uh, 9-11, we just recently celebrated the anniversary of that or remembered the anniversary of that. Her father was in Flight 77, which crashed into the Pentagon. And, and she was a woman of faith, but when that happened, all of a sudden there was this crisis of, what do I do? How could a God who loved me let this happen, let this pain come into my life and all of those things? And, and, and I don't falter for her struggle. I mean, we're human. We've all been there, right? But at the end of the struggle, at the end of the day, much like where Susan Van Volkenberg came, here's what we all have to ultimately conclude, is that we answer to God and he doesn't answer to us. That he gets to determine how things are, not we get to tell him how things ought to be. That God acts many times outside of the way we expect, or, or the way that we would think they ought to be. We don't get to tell him what to do, he tells us what to do. And our responsibility is simply to understand this creator God, and then to surrender to him and his will and his plans for us. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me appeal to your logic for just a moment. Because I think the place that most of us live, a good percentage of the time, is the position that really makes the least rational sense. Here, I'll, I'll just talk for me. I think where I live a good portion of the time in my life is I'm about 83% surrendered to God. You know, I, I, I love God. And, and, and I strive to obey Him mostly. I, wa I want to surrender control of my life to Him mostly. But those are, they're, they're those areas, right, that I want to hold on to. I, I want to hold on to this worry. I want to hold on to this sin. I want to hold on to this action. I, want to, I, don't, I don't want to give this attitude over to you. I See, but here's what I'd put forth to you this morning. Is that if there is a God, and I think the evidence is overwhelming, creation shouts that he's there. That if there is a God, then the only position that makes any sense is to be fully surrendered to him and whatever he says. And so I would just challenge you this morning. If you're holding anything back, if there's some, some struggle, that I, and again, I'm not faulting you for your struggle. We're human. We have to fight through our own emotions and all of those. I'm, I'm not faulting any of us for that. But at the end of the day, the only thing that makes any sense is to give it all to him, to be totally surrendered to him, to be completely given to him, to obey him absolutely and fully.
And so as we just continue to worship here in just a minute, I'm going to challenge you to, to make the words that we're singing the true reflection of your heart. Paul in Romans chapter 12, uh, the first couple of verses of that chapter, uh, very familiar verses, he says this, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, and this is your true and proper worship. God says, Paul says, put yourself on the altar. (laughs) Give him everything. You climb up there. Don't, Don't give him things. Give him you. All of you. You climb up on the altar. And he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will, his his good and pleasing and perfect will. Well, those words, if you notice, begin with the word, therefore. And that's because it follows what was written before it, right? You know that when Paul penned Romans, or when any of the rest of the Bible was written, those chapters and verses weren't in there, right? They came along later to help us be able to find places in our Bibles. When he was writing, he just said what he said there at the start of chapter 12 after what he just finished saying before that, right? And so I think it's interesting to go back and look at the end of chapter 11, where Paul gives this great doxology. Listen to what he says in Romans 11, starting in verse 33. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths before tracing out, beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? I mean, who's given God advice, right? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? Hey, who does God owe anything to, right? He says in verse 38, 4, or verse 36, 4, from him. And through him and for him are all things. And to him be the glory forever. Amen. And so because that's who God is, therefore, give him everything. Climb up on the altar and surrender every part of you to him. And so as we sing these Next couple of songs. I want to just invite you to do business with God. If there's some area you're holding back, if there's some issue that you say, I I just don't know if I can trust God in this area. Listen, I I just want to challenge you to surrender that, to give that, to to turn it all, to obey Him completely, to give it all to Him. We're going to have prayer partners like we we do during these next couple of songs. And if if you just benefit from from praying with someone, uh, you, you know, maybe there's just, someone praying over you about a particular area, then you just take advantage of this. But let, let's make these words not merely be what's coming out of our mouths, but the reflection of our hearts as we worship God together. Let's stand and worship Him. So there is a God, right? And He, he gets to call the shots. Then this third point, I think, is the one that's the too big for our pea-sized brains part. Because point three is this, that this one true God exists in three persons. Father, 
Son, and Spirit. And I think this is where it comes off the rails for some people because it's a concept that we can't completely get our minds around, right? Three separate, distinct individuals. And yet they are so united in their thinking, in their actions, in their wills, that they are one. C.S. Lewis called this the divine dance. And I think that's kind of a good picture because, you know, maybe you've watched Dancing with the Stars or maybe some really high-caliber uh, ballroom dancers or even uh, something else like a synchronized swimming team or something where there's, there, there's many people and yet they perform this routine with such fluidity, with such union together, with such exactness that you kind of get lost in the fact that there's more than one of them, Right? That they're so united in what they do. See, we think diversity automatically means separation, means disunity. I mean, you get three people together, you got at least five opinions, right? <laughs> and I think some authors have tried to help us maybe start to get a glimpse of understanding this. In our day, um, there's the, the book The Shack. And in the, in the Shack, you see God, the Godhead, three different persons kind of functioning together, but all of the same uh, mindset, all of the same focus. Some people have trouble with that book because in it, God is pictured as a big, God the Father is pictured as a big black woman. And, and if you read the book, you realize that that's God, the book, the author's not trying to say God's a big black woman. He takes on that form for the main character in that book. Can you find that out as you kind of go along why he chose that character? I mean, any allegory breaks down, right? But, but I think it does a good job of helping us see this three distinct individuals, three different persons, and yet so united together that they're one. Uh, some people have tried to you know, say, well, you know, it's kind of like water. You know, it can be steam. It can be, you know, if you boil it, it could be ice if you freeze it, or it can be liquid if you leave it as water. But again, you know, the problem is it can't be all three of those things at the same time. Again, any allegory breaks down. But what the Bible tells us clearly is that there is one God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, verses 4 and 5, the Hebrew Shema says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Isaiah 45, verses 5 and 6 says, I am the Lord. And there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. And I will strengthen you, and though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of the setting, people may know there is none beside me. I am the Lord. There is no other. One God, right? Clear as a bell. <laughs> and yet hints of his diversity are all throughout the Old Testament. B back to Genesis chapter 1 the very first book in our Bibles. In verses 26 and 27, it reads, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image. God is having this conversation with himself. <laughs> the Trinity, the Godhead there. In our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. 
And so God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. In fact, Elohim, which is the Hebrew word that's used for God here in Genesis 1 and many other parts, most of the Old Testament, is a plural noun. I mean, everywhere that Elohim is used throughout the Bible, the noun doesn't agree with the verb. It's a plural noun and a singular verb. This amazing God. All throughout the Old Testament, there are these hints of this one God who exists in plurality. And then we get to the New Testament, and it's clearly spelled out. I mean, Jesus himself in Matthew 28 said this, Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. One God who exists as three different persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Not, not one God with three personalities. He's not schizophrenic where sometimes he's this and sometimes he's that. And No, one God who exists as three totally separate people. You know, I think, I think because we're linear. See, we exist in time and space. We tend to think, like, think things like, well, no, okay, so it's the Father who created... And then it was the Son who came and died on the cross to pay for our sin. And, and then it's the Spirit today who's, who's living in us and indwelling us and who's active now. But, but the Bible presents all three members of the Godhead involved in creation. The Bible tells us that all three members of the Trinity, see the tri-three unity, the, the Trinity, all three members were involved in our salvation. It's all three members of the Godhead who are involved in our continued sanctification, in our growth as Christians. In fact, all the main names of God are used for each of the different members of the Trinity, whether that's Yahweh or Elohim or Adonai. They're used for each of the different members of the Trinity. All of the main attributes of God are attributed to each member of the Trinity. All the major works of God are attributed to each member of the Trinity, whether we're talking about creation or the incarnation or the death of Christ or our atonement or the resurrection or the inspiration of Scripture, all of them, God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And all three members of the Godhead were involved in your salvation if you know Jesus Christ today as your Savior. Look, let me just show you that. Jude the first verse, just one chapter in Jude, the first verse says this, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, called, called what? Those who have been called to Christ, those who know Jesus as their Savior. To those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. So, so the Father is involved in our salvation. Then over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Verse 11, it says, and that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, you, were, you became a Christian, you got saved, you were washed in the blood of Jesus, you were, you were saved out of that, uh, washed in his blood, justified. It says, you have done that in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's the Son, and by the Spirit of our God. See, 
The Son and the Spirit are involved in our salvation as well as the Father. All three members of the Trinity were involved in our salvation, and all three are involved in our sanctification and our daily walk on this earth. The Father loving us and directing in our lives. The Son who is interceding for us right now before the Father. And the Spirit who is living in us, sealing us and guiding us and convicting us. I don't understand that. <laughs> I can't get my mind around it. But I know this, this great God, who is the creator and the sustainer of everything, who has the right to call all the shots in my life and the whole world, he exists in three persons. And so let's worship him, Father, Son, and Spirit. One last time, let's stand together and let's worship him this morning. So here's what Christians believe to start with. There is a God who gets to call the shots. And he exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. You know, I'd be remiss today if I didn't ask you, do you know him? Not do you go to church, not are you a good person, not are you doing the best you can, but do you know this God, this God who maybe even right now is calling you, who took on flesh to die to pay the blood price to pay for your sin, and who right now is moving in you, convicting you, calling you to himself. Do you know him? Boy, if you don't, or if you're not sure that you do, don't leave here without knowing that you know that you know. Talk to somebody and say, hey, I'm not sure I'm clear on this. Talk to somebody and be sure about that. Don't forget on your way out that uh, the ushers are by the door. If you want to uh, give something. It's our Take 5 offering for those Meccano Village book bags. We call it a Take 5 offering because, again, we're just asking you to, over above your regular giving, maybe take out a 5, or as Claude challenged us this morning, maybe a 500, and you know, drop it in there on your way out. And 100% of that goes towards these book bags. You can help in that way if God might have you do that this morning. Like always, God's word is the last word, and so let me leave you with these words from 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 14, where Paul says this, And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.